0: So.
1: Um, so Ted isn't here yet. Does he normally read, identify questions for you? Do you want me to do that? Or are you uh, doing it on your own?
0: Yeah, that, actually, that would that would be a nice thing to do, yes.
1: Oh, okay, well, let me just line up the window. Um, okay, the first question I see listed is from Jared do we, I don't see Jared on the call, so I guess we can put this aside for the moment. Is that usually the way you do it?
0: That's how I've done it the last couple of times because there are so many questions. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and do that, and, and we'll come back, and if we have time, we'll answer Jared's questions and those of anyone else who isn't able to be here.
1: Great. Next is from Alexander Morozov, uh, i see seen a couple of Alex's, are either of you?
0: There's an Alex Kelly, there's another Alex. I think uh, that's not a question, uh, that was just
2: a comment.
1: Oh, I suggest muting all participants upon entry. Uh, well, it looks like they all are, so, all right, we're two down. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Next is Jason Wong. I, Hi. Jason Wong, okay. Um, do you want me to read the question or do you have it in front of you?
0: Uh, I have it in front of me. Uh, does everyone else have it in front of them?
1: Actually, I was asking Jason, but either way. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh,
1: so, all right, well, we have the question. So, uh us, so why don't you go ahead?
0: Okay, well, I, I think it is helpful to read it, so... Uh, but okay so Jason
1: uh, uh, Jason or I can read it just to mix it up so Jason asks is it useful for one to specifically practice awareness of sounds or visual objects in order to strengthen introspective awareness of those senses or can one obtain the same clarity through body awareness alone I find that although my body awareness is good and I'm sometimes aware of thoughts through the body door before they manifest at other times, I'm still caught off guard by auditory and visual thought or visual thoughts. Mm-hmm. With specific practice, with those senses, strength and awareness of them.
0: Okay, that that's a pretty straightforward question, Jason. Uh, yes, I would recommend that you try to be as aware, uh, as aware as you can of everything. Uh, well, I'm, when I say that you try to be, I, you hold the intention. To be okay, and uh, if if you find that you're being uh, surprised or or startled by uh, sounds or some other something other than a bodily sensation, then uh, that's that's an indication that perhaps you could be more aware of these external things. But uh, uh, yes, to begin with, you you just want to be as aware as you can of. uh, of everything. And so if, if you come to realize that there are things that you haven't been aware of, then you try to hold them in your awareness thereafter. Now, what is going to happen quite naturally, and it's not a problem, is that uh, external sounds and uh, even bodily sensations are going to be less and less relevant to what you are experiencing and what you're exploring in your practice. And so you will tend to be less uh, less aware of those things. But uh, nevertheless, it's not a question of not wanting to be aware of them. It's just that uh, introspective awareness is gradually going to uh, exceed extrospective awareness in important, therefore, uh, the, the conscious power that you have to bring to awareness will be more directed towards uh, thoughts, emotions, uh, states of mind, things like that, movements of attention. Um, so if uh, is it actually useful to sometimes select an object of attention of that particular sense door in order to strengthen awareness? That sounds um, or like, for example, uh, you know the inner the inner sounds like the mm-hmm. um, or, or a or something
2: for the visual field mm-hmm.
0: yes uh, the this practice that we do that in is a is that four step transition, and in the first step of the transition, one of the things you do is direct yourself direct your attention to uh, anything in the field of conscious awareness including sounds smells uh, anything else then then you move towards uh, uh, confining your attention to bodily sensations but maintaining an awareness those things now something similar is going to be going on in stages uh, uh, one through uh, one through three in that when you when, you're, when, when you know that there's something that you haven't had in awareness previously, uh, you may direct your, you, you will almost involuntarily direct your attention to it, and then if you have the intention to keep it in your awareness, then attention goes back to the meditation object, and that continues to be a part of your awareness. Does the, the last part of what I said make sense to you? So th- this this is how, uh, in the interaction between attention and awareness, uh, attention is going to try to fulfill the intention of being more aware. And it actually does that uh, by drawing, uh, well, by, by making it, by flagging things in awareness that you want to continue to be aware of. But eventually that stops happening and there's no need to redirect attention towards those things. Right, okay, thank you. You're welcome.
1: All right, the next question is from Adrian. Um, There is an Adrian on the call. I don't know if it's the same one. Yes, I am. Uh, Great, great. So um, the question is, I would like to know, what are the differences between feeling and emotion? I'm experiencing changes in my ego structure, and I experience different things that could be called emotion, and qualitatively speaking, they are very different.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, well, let's just start with the first thing, and uh, what, what we are translating as feeling uh, as a part of Buddhist jargon in in, uh, in English is uh, uh, the vedana uh, that are just simply pleasant, the quali- qualitative, uh, uh, hedonic sensation, uh, qualia of pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant or unpleasant. So uh emotions are they are there is a mental state that is created by an emotion so the emotion is is not exactly identical to a, medical, a mental state for all practical for all practical purposes though uh, emotions manifest as a mental state which predisposes you to uh, certain kinds of perceptions, interpretations and behavioral responses. And within, within any particular emotion, any particular mental state, there are going to be uh, a variety of feelings, uh, of pleasant, unpleasant and, and neutral. Uh, as a matter of fact, everything, every physical sensation and every mental event is uh, going to be associated uh, with either a feeling of pleasant or unpleasant or neither. Uh, By including neither, uh, then the definition includes everything. So uh, now... That's the basic difference between feelings and emotions. Emotions have a lot to do with what kinds of feelings arise and what kinds of feelings arise in response to specific things. And different emotions will produce different feelings in response to the same thing. Now, you go on to say, I'm experiencing changes in my ego structure, and I experience different things that could be called emotion, and qualitatively, speaking they are very different so uh perhaps you could just elucidate a little bit uh on uh, they could be called emotion and qualitatively speaking they are different from what different from what you would have called emotion before Uh,
3: now i would call them feeling more than emotions and i mean that uh, there are different well now that makes much more much more sense, but I was uh, referring to the difference between each other like uh, I thought that there might be some of those experiences uh, feeling might be called feelings and others of those experiences might be called emotions mm-hmm. since I was asking this uh, also because I heard. I watched a a talk you gave uh, Mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, and you said that the part of the brain that processes information that's related with peripheral awareness is in charge of emotional thinking, I think. Uh, Um. (laughs) It it wasn't a slide.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure what the the context of that was, because uh, th- there is there is uh, an interaction uh, between uh, the between emotions and both that way of, and, and both ways of, of information processing, but yes, they are qualitatively different. Um, the the emotions that uh, arise in response to focusing awareness on something, and uh, the the sorts of information processing associated with uh, uh, attention are uh, they they are more egocentric, uh, and and clearly so and they tend to be geared much more towards uh, the preservation of the well-being of both your physical body and your uh, uh, your ego ego structure and uh, and the preservation of positive emotion and feeling states uh, and the avoidance of negative emotion and feeling states. Whereas uh, in the process of awareness, there is is a qualitative difference in the way you experience emotions uh, because emotions are the emotion that is present, the mental state that is present from moment to moment and these are shifting and changing, and, uh, but we will enter, into, of course, into emotional states that are fairly, fairly long-lasting and fairly stable. The qualitative difference in the way the emotion is experienced is there's not the same degree of uh, identification with it. It's not as egocentric. Uh, rather, it is experienced more in the larger context, Which of course takes into account uh, your your uh, well being, but it is not it's not going as geared to towards the uh, enhancement of your uh, your ego or the protection of your ego or reaction to uh, your ego, because it is more more allocentric which means other centered than ego centered so uh, the kind the kinds of emotions that arise and the kind of responses that they produce are qualitatively different uh, now is is would this correspond to the qualitative difference that you're talking about the you say, you because you say there are changes in your ego structure, and and yeah. that, yeah. Uh, so it means you're starting to experience things more from the perspective of uh, the information processing associated with awareness rather than than attention.
3: It's not clear to me.
0: It's I mean, not clear I, to you.
3: I'm still not that stable in my experience of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so that's fine. Well, let me give you this to work with then, since you're, you're starting to experience something that's different, is to simply uh, think of it in these terms. Uh, uh, is, is, there, is there less of a tendency to identify yourself with the emotion, and more of a tendency to experience the emotion as something that is present in your consciousness as part of the totality of your experience of the moment. And as a part of that, uh, do you notice that if you shift attention to whatever uh, whatever it is that's producing the emotion, but then you be, it, it becomes much more difficult to remain objective about the emotion and you are much more likely to identify with the emotion and uh, think and speak and act out of that identification. So look to see if that's the kind of shift that you're experiencing because if so, then that is a, that's, a, that's exactly the direction that you want to go. Okay,
3: so, uh, okay thank
0: you. Right. All right, <clears throat>
1: the next question actually, um, Jared is here now, so okay. um, his question is, you define mindfulness as the optimal interplay of awareness and attention. From what I can gather, we usually aim for a majority of attention mind moments and a fewer yet consistent amount of awareness mind moments. Can you expand on how variable this ratio should ideally be throughout the many circumstances of life?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, we would like to move in the direction of more, uh, of greater and greater awareness and invoking. those attentional processes uh, as appropriate, uh, guided by awareness. Um, But when you are in the description of the early stages, um, what we're interested in doing is to replace non-perceiving mind moments with moments of attention and with moments of awareness. We're looking to increase both of those. The way we are conditioned uh, pretty much from birth is to rely predominantly on attention and to uh, seriously underuse awareness. So, uh, The normal state of uh, the typical person is to have a consciousness that is uh, uh, very much dominated by mind, by attention, by moments of attention, and uh, uh, sort of minimal number of uh, moments of awareness proportionally, and this is is one of the things that we're setting out to change right from the very beginning. Um, I know that I define mindfulness as the optimal interaction of awareness and attention, and um, that is, in the vast majority of cases, uh, what we are experiencing. But there is a certain circularity in that definition, which um, one of my students did some uh, very wonderful work exploring uh, and uh, delving into the suttas because I had made the statement that I was puzzled why uh, the Buddha didn't seem to Articulate a distinct difference between these two different modes of, aware, of, of of knowing, these two different modes of consciousness. And what he discovered by carefully examining the way the Buddha used the word sati, uh, and uh, this removed the circularity. The circularity that I'm talking about is in the Eightfold Path. There is samasamadhi, which is stability of attention, and there is samasati. Which uh, we translate as uh, as as mindfulness, and if mindfulness is a combination of uh, uh, awareness and and atten- attention, you see the circularity in there. We're including samasati, I mean sama-samadhi into uh, or, or, or right right concentration into the definition of right mindfulness. And so, what I've subsequently come to realize. Uh, examining you know well let me add to this uh, in addition to the fact that the vast majority of our experience of being mindful involves an optimal experience uh, optimal interaction of uh, attention and awareness in addition to that there are uh, there are states where uh, attention is uh, doesn't seem to be present or at least isn't present recognizably the way it normally would be. And there is only awareness. And um, these were all, you know, it was always a puzzle. How how could, you know, what exactly was happening here? Because these were the highest states of mindfulness that you can imagine. Um, And then it just, I realized it had been staring me in the face all the time. The Buddha did make a very clear distinction between attention as samadhi, very accurately so, and and, uh, awareness as sati, as mindfulness. And this also explains why all of these different definitions that people have tried to generate of mindfulness have always seemed like they were sort of right, but... But they were all different, and and different. You know, nobody really was able to come to an agreement to what mindfulness was. And mindfulness is awareness. This is what what I've come to realize, and that to develop mindfulness, to develop a high level of mindfulness, is to come to a place where uh, uh, your the normal perceptual mode that you you uh, exist in is that of a high level of mindfulness, of sati, of awareness. Your perception of the world is guided by the kind of information processing that gives rise to awareness. So uh, an arhat, a Buddha, is living in a state of awareness and using attention in a very appropriate way. They're living, they're living in a way where there is this uh, optimal interaction of attention and awareness, but attention takes the role of being uh, the tool or the servant of awareness, and the, the primary mode of perceiving reality is that of awareness. So on a, on a much larger scale here, we're not only cultivating more and more awareness. You know, uh, as a matter of fact, one of the main reasons for stabilizing attention initially is to um, get attention out of the way so it doesn't dominate consciousness so you have a chance to develop awareness. But as you go along and awareness becomes more and more powerful, mindfulness becomes more and more powerful, uh, then what is happening is that attention is being trained to, uh, uh, first of all, we train it in stability. We eliminate spontaneous movements of uh, attention and eventually reach, reach the point uh, we do the work in stage six where we can sustain a state of exclusive attention. So attention uh, rests wherever we choose to put it and it sustains a scope that's that's intentionally chosen and directed by awareness, by mindfulness, by, by the collective intention of the sub-minds that bring that uh, about. And indeed, What is happening as the insights develop is that we are recognizing that the perspective provided by awareness is a more accurate representation of reality, a more accurate description of reality than the perceptions that are generated through attention. Now, attention and that mode of uh, information processing associated with it is extremely powerful, The reason that it dominates, uh, the reason that it has come to dominate amongst our species is that it is so powerful and uh, that's why we tend to believe that we're lords of the earth. It's why we are able to manipulate information so successfully and have a deep understanding of the physical universe. It's why we are able to uh create technology out of that knowledge and uh so it's a wonderful powerful thing but it's also at the same time a curse it has deprived us of the ability to see things more as they really are which is something that, that is provided by awareness and uh we've been too successful biologically uh too successful in reproducing ourselves and living longer and longer to the point where we've severely overpopulated the planet. And we've been too successful in increasing the ease and comfort of our lives uh, and uh, building all kinds of devices to achieve various ends, both both positive and negative. Um, And, uh, this is the world we live in. It's the it's a world that's a result of the overuse of attention, the dominance of attention, and the loss of the perspective on reality that is provided through awareness. And so what we are doing in meditation, uh, in the process of insight, and in the stages in, in the paths of awakening, is we are learning to bring ourselves into a state where uh, where the uh, perception of reality is, uh, is that that is characterized by awareness and that uh, this very, very powerful tool that uh, is the uh, information processing that manifests in consciousness as attention is used appropriately But it is used under the direction of the perspective that is provided by awareness rather than constituting the perspective by which we experience ourselves in the world. So the view that we're a separate self and we live in a world of separate entities. And if we can, the better we can understand things, the more we can manipulate the world in order to meet our personal needs. You can see how clearly that this is, yes, this is what attention does. This is what attention has allowed us to do. But the cost is enormous individual suffering because uh, it, we uh, we create and reify this illusion of being a separate self in a world of separate entities. And uh, everything we think and do tends to end up in the service uh, of that notion of self, which is itself illusory. So, so, although we want to recruit moments of non-perceiving mind moments as moments of attention and awareness in meditation, the overall direction that we're moving is actually uh, fewer moments of attention as opposed to moments of awareness, and those moments of attention are uh, uh, directed and guided so that you're paying what you pay attention to is uh, what is most appropriate uh, uh, in, in in any given moment this is a little bit larger answer than the original question, but uh I think it, it, in the early stages, it feels like yeah, we want more, we, we, we're trying to have more attention because we're trying to have more clarity. But at every step, we're also trying to have more awareness. And you'll notice that awareness is what is allowing us to stabilize attention and to diminish the uh, spontaneous movements of attention. So we're increasing the overall conscious power but we're giving uh, a lot of emphasis to the cultivation of awareness. And if you look in the first interlude and you compare, uh, compare awareness, uh, characteristics of awareness and attention, you'll see what I'm talking about in terms of uh, insight and the uh, awakened states. And then if you read the part of that chapter where I'm talking about the way that attention and uh, awareness interact, that uh, everything in consciousness arises first in awareness, and the proper role of awareness is to direct attention so that it is used most appropriately. So uh, all of that is is already in there, in that first interlude. That's great, thank you so much. You're welcome.
1: All right, um, so the next... Oh sorry.
3: sorry, could I ask for a clarification yes on yes. on the answer. How can sati be mindfulness and awareness at the same time and mindfulness be the optimal interaction between attention and peripheral awareness?
0: Well, it can't that's what I started out saying is that is that my original definition um was not exactly correct, which I came to realize afterwards. The reason that I defined it that way is experientially, this is this is how we experience mindfulness. It's how we experience mindfulness in daily life. It's how we experience mindfulness in the developmental process of meditation, uh, is that it, there is this optimal interaction between the two. But uh, we could, should correct that definition so that, mindfulness uh, is sati, sati is mindfulness, and that uh, uh, samadhi is attention, stable attention, uh, you know, and uh, attention is samadhi. And so we remove the circularity that's present in that. Now, it's still valid in the sense that except for certain stages, certain states that occur in advanced stages of meditation, and in the uh, paths of awakening, and uh, also in the arising of, of certain uh, insight experiences, there is in, rather than an optimal interaction of attention and awareness, there seems to be just pure awareness and this was This was the thing that you know uh, I, because. The, addition, the definition that I provided in the text uh, was based on the predominant experience. It left this explanatory gap, and that explanatory gap is completely resolved when we, if I revise that statement to say, mindfulness manifests as the optimal interaction, but mindfulness is awareness. Okay, thank you. You're welcome.
1: All right, so next question. It doesn't look like Monish is here or Steven, or uh, I don't think German is here. So that takes us to Thomas Jansen, who is here. Okay. Um, uh, long question, do you see that in front of you? Julia yes, I do. So, um, my understanding of intention as applied in stage two is as follows. One submind aware that there is a meditation project in progress, acting through consciousness, voluntarily directs attention to the sensations of the breath of the nose. One unconscious sub announces to consciousness a determination to act, as in follow and sustain attention on the breath sensations of the nose. Stage 2 practice guide, page 29. This is setting an intention. A number of subconsciousness minds that are tuned into consciousness at the time hear the recommendation and join in to support the effort of, quote, following and sustaining attention on the breath sensations at the nose, end quote. When one of the team of subminds notices that attention has left the breath, it alerts consciousness, which a, quote, redirecting submind hears and then voluntarily redirects attention to the breath. As this happens over and over, more and more sub minds get on board and the redirecting becomes a mental habit. Questions. One, how accurate is this description of how intention operates? And two, even though directing attention to the breath sensations is a voluntary action, should we also set a conscious intention to do so, allowing it to become more automatic as we progress?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, this is by and large an, an accurate uh, uh, description. There are, um, I, I would make a, a couple of very minor uh, uh, tweaks to this. You say one sub mine. Aware that there is a meditation project in prog- uh, in progress, I would say that there there is a uh, a some group of sub minds rather than uh, more likely. But this is, um, I would say that because my my impression is that uh, that. Uh, there are usually multiple subminds acting in concert so there may be a small number that's not much of a change that's why i say it's really minor and then the next one you say one conscious submind announces to consciousness it's more like a probably a small group that have uh uh, uh that are doing this uh but you know um i couldn't say I, I couldn't say with absolute certainty that that's the way it is that's what it, that's what fits my uh knowledge and understanding uh, my uh, uh, academic knowledge of uh, the interaction of uh, uh, very various, various uh brain networks uh and my subjective experience because it seems as though there's a uh, uh, waxing and waning of the uh, strength of uh, intention amongst other things that is easier to explain if we're talking about a small group of subminds that could, could increase or decrease as we go along. So those are really minor things. Otherwise, uh, those that you know, describing it in terms of one sub- submind is just fine. It gets the whole idea across perfectly well. And uh, yeah, so yes, uh, when sub minds notice that attention has left the breath, then they project this into consciousness, and you have you have that moment of realization. And uh, in that moment of realization, uh, the uh, the number of sub minds that are involved uh, increases. Uh, quite a bit. All those sub minds that were engaged in uh, whatever the distraction was are now uh, are, are now engaged in the uh, the awareness uh, that uh, that there has been a, a shift in attention, and so this is this gives us that that feeling of waking up, that feeling that comes from having uh, a larger part of the mind unified. Around uh, those uh, those intentions to meditate and around the recognition that something else has happened, so um, next thing so it's 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 quite an accurate description, yes, I think you understand what I'm saying there quite well you say, even though directing attention is a, a voluntary action, should we also set a conscious intention to do so well actually. The intention uh, really precedes the action, but uh, uh, so. Uh, well, but what we the statement here that is correct and accurate is that yes, we should be really the main thing that you're doing. You, uh, the the act is following the intention. So, to the extent that you experience yourself as an agent who's actually participating in the meditation process. Uh, while that not, may not be true from the higher the point of insight, but that is the reality of your subjective experience at the time that uh, uh, this is occurring, is that, that you as agent are generating and holding attention. So yes, uh, the, the voluntary directing of uh, attention is the result of an intention, and you want that intention to be held, uh, to be renewed and refreshed as much as possible. So um, I would agree totally with what you said here, uh, Tom. Now, your question continues. I, I think we have time. Actually, I think the second part is answered already. Okay. It's kind of an extension, so all right. Great. I think the answer is intention. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The answer is intention. Okay, thank you.
2: Thank you very much. Yes.
1: Okay, the next question is uh from Marcel. Uh uh. He asks, what is your opinion on slash experience of the different realms and their inhabitants described in Buddhist texts? Both in the Theravadan as well as the Tibetan traditions, you can find numerous accounts of the Buddha and other saints traveling to other realms and meeting different forms of beings. But then again, you can find in both traditions, teachers who see all of it as a huge metaphor. I think this together with reincarnation, uh, is one of the biggest stumbling blocks for Westerners entering the Dhamma. So your views mm-hmm. would maybe be helpful.
0: Yeah. Well, I certainly fall in the in the camp of uh, this being a metaphor. It's an extremely powerful, useful, and accurate metaphor. When I look around me, I find myself surrounded by people who are living in these different realms, everything from the highest deva realms to the worst hell realms. Um, and uh, not only that, uh, I reflect on my personal experience of life, and during the course of my life, I not only see that I have dwelt in different of the different ones of these realms at different times, but now I can see how uh, how my my thoughts and intentions and actions uh, have led me uh, are, are what is responsible for my having dwelt in those realms. Uh, uh, what we might call the more wholesome uh, thoughts, uh, mental states, uh, intentions. Uh, ways of seeing things, ways of relating to people and circumstances, that uh, the the wholesome, more wholesome versions of those and the more of those that uh, have dominated, the more my subjective experience has been more like that of some kind of a god uh, in some uh, formless realm. And there's, there's certainly other times that my... Response to uh, circumstances, both internal and external, have put me into a hell realms. So I find it a a, a, a tremendous metaphor. Uh, uh, it's uh, it is it, it is such an accurate metaphor that uh, it almost uh, it 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 almost should be categorized not as a metaphor, but as a description of uh, how we come to experience things in life. Now, as far as the idea that these actual realms should exist as some some different universe and things like that, uh, I have to confess that uh, I have, there's no way that I can refute that. As a matter of fact, trained as a scientist, uh, the very deeply ingrained uh, point of view uh, that that I can't help but hold is that there, it's impossible to ultimately refute anything like that. This is, it's totally untestable. Uh, on the other hand, We're, all of us are always living in a hallucination and um, we are constantly generating other hallucinations, altered states of consciousness in uh, all kinds of different ways. Our emotions produce in everyone altered states of consciousness. Uh, People who go on spiritual paths experience altered states of consciousness as a result of their practices, which are very commonly mistaken for more than what they are. And um, so it it is, in, in terms of these being uh, something that somebody may have the experience of seeming to find themselves. In, in other words, if their, their current hallucination could very well take the form of them uh, feeling that they are occupying uh, a, a different realm than that of the human realm uh, or the animal realm. Um, but to... I guess what I'm saying is that to posit an ultimate reality to something like these different realms, when we can't even posit our normal experience of the world as we live in it day by day as being an ultimate reality, uh, then um, it doesn't make sense. it's, it's It's illogical to say that uh, something that can't be proven or disproven from a scientific point of view, something that can't be, uh, can't be tested, uh, so on and so forth, that to say that just because somebody may have had an experience that seemed as if they were in one of these realms uh, in, in a more literally accurate sense than the metaphorical one, that we were talking about before uh, would would sound pretty foolish it would be it would, you know uh, we, we've all experienced all kinds of altered states of consciousness that seem quite real at the time and uh, and so reports of somebody saying well uh, I know that this is real because I've experienced it uh, just carries no weight with me uh, at all um, But it is a beautifully powerful and accurate description of the realms that we as individuals create for ourselves and live in, and uh, uh, it's very useful in that way. As a matter of fact, considering how, how clear and powerful it is in that sense, it is tremendously underutilized be, to the extent that uh, uh, it, it should be and that and it may be underutilized because in many cases there's an assumption that somehow it's a, a description of ultimate reality or ultimate truth
2: yeah thank you very much um but may i perhaps uh, ask a little bit more um sure the interaction? <laughs> um then uh, karma and rebirth so i mean most of these or let's put it this way the buddha often um puts it in his gradual teaching also that first of all you should um amass good karma to have a good rebirth in one of these different realms would this then again be like some metaphor of about uh, like the next moment that rebirth is not about like the next life but actually the next consciousness moment or something like that?
0: Yes, the, the Buddha took the concepts that were prevalent at the time and redefined them and essentially, what is it that's reborn? Uh, I mean, th- this is the this is puzzle that many Buddhists have dealt with for a long time. If there is no self, what is it that uh, could be reincarnated? Uh, But what the Buddha is really talking about, and uh, this is implicit within the links of dependent origination, is that over and over again, what is reborn is the illusion of self. So it's the self that's being reborn. It's the self that's being reborn each morning when you wake up. It's... uh, uh, the self that's being reborn in a different form in each situation that you go through in the course of a day. Uh, if we go down to the level that uh, you can go to a very fine level in terms of the links of dependent origination, and you find that the self is being reborn moment by moment. And with the Uh, with the rebirth of the self uh, then they're continued with this constant continuous rebirth of the self which is uh, which is an illusion but it's a real illusion if you know what I mean (laughs) it may be an illusion but the fact that you are experiencing that illusion that is true that is real and so this rebirth of the self is resulting in this whole mass of suffering. And so that's what he's talking about there. Um, One of the things, you you cannot take the suttas literally for a variety of reasons, but the main reason I'm going to mention, first of all, is that there has been, uh, 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 scholars have demonstrated a huge amount of, a, di- a material that has been added uh, long after uh, the Buddha and uh, that there has been large amounts of material that were removed. Uh, in the early stages of Buddhism there were at least 18 different sects holding very, very different beliefs. Uh, just to give you an idea of how different those beliefs were compared to the... Uh, the uh, schools of Buddhism that have survived to the present day. There was uh, one called the Pugala Vadin's, who believed in the uh, 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 self-existence of uh, of the self-existent nature of the personality, the Pugala. Is, uh, refers to personality. So that's how bizarre the different interpretations of those were. And there were 18 different interpretations of the Buddha's teachings. They all had their own uh, uh, suttas and abhidhammas, And uh, uh, we know this from the remnants of them that have survived either because they were translated into uh, Chinese and the Chinese wrote them down, uh, or they were uh, some 500 years later. They were written down in uh, Sanskrit, and most most of the Sanskrit suttas have uh, been lost. But there's fragments of them that remain, and so scholars can look at these and see that there's been large redactions and large additions. So, to the degree in a in a in a culture that uh, was predominantly believed in reincarnation when there came, uh, a couple of hundred years after the passing of the Buddha, the era when all of these different Buddhist, uh, uh, call them, well, let's call them schools rather than sex, uh, they were competing with each other for the support of uh, wealthy patrons, but most especially of uh, kings and emperors and things like this uh, they were competing to become the uh, dominant form of Buddhism, and um, incorporating popular beliefs into Buddhist teachings would have been a very effective way of uh, of you know in uh, gaining gaining popularity and support uh, so To what degree this took place, what scholars do say is that this was certainly going on. Now, what I see is a consistent pattern where the Buddha has taken uh, uh, ideas that are common and reframed them in a much more useful and powerful sense. Uh, For example, prior to the Buddha, the belief was that The only way you could achieve uh, awakening, enlightenment, whatever it was, uh, whatever terminology you would associate with it, was something that only happened after you died. It was really novel for this guy to come along and say, hey, you know, you can become awakened in this very lifetime. Uh, it, It isn't something that has to happen after you die. Most of the objective of the spiritual practices were to escape from this wheel of reincarnation this continued process of reincarnation but what what has always been most popular about reincarnation has has not been the idea that i'm trapped on this wheel of samsara and i need to escape so much as uh, as oh great that means that that uh, i'm not annihilated uh, when I die. And and the Buddha said both the question of, you know, am I annihilated or uh, do I continue to exist? He said both of these questions were meaningless and irrelevant because there's no, uh, the self that might either be annihilated or continue to exist was only uh, an imaginary construct. Anyway, did the same thing with karma. He said, when I say karma, I mean intention. So we go from a place where there's this there's, there's this thing that can never be understood uh, of how uh, your actions can be the cause of everything, how your past actions can be the cause of everything that happens to you uh, in this lifetime and the, uh, and how everything that you do in this lifetime, all of your actions in this lifetime, are going to determine what happens to you and who you are and where you're born in a future lifetime. Um, this is pretty impenetrable from a logical or rational point of view. Uh, what it means when an airplane crashes with 300 passengers that Somehow the universe brought together three hundred people who all had the karma to die in an airplane crash. Um, you know, somehow, somehow the universe brought together uh, 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 six million people at one time who had the karma to die in gas chambers and and uh, uh, other forms of uh, of mass killing during uh during the nazi era era this earlier version of karma was impenetrable on the other hand the buddha said when i say karma i mean intention and that all makes sense now so your wholesome intentions your intentions are what drive your actions and your speech and your livelihood Um, but your intentions have a profound effect on you. Wholesome intentions uh, are intentions that shape who you are in the future. And what makes them wholesome is uh, that they bring you closer to awakening. What makes them unwholesome is they take you further from awakening. Uh, Another way of putting it is your unwholesome intentions that result in unwholesome actions, uh, they are those that cause harm to yourself and others. Why would you do something that causes harm to yourself and others? It's because it's driven by craving and by some belief that somehow that, that this is going to benefit the imaginary self. So, uh, you know, in, in, in the short term. So, uh, somebody uses drugs in order to feel good in the short term, even though it's bad for them in the long term. Uh, somebody takes advantage of another person in such a way that they are harmed in order to become either uh, favored by others to achieve uh, fame or to achieve wealth or any of the other things that you can think of. And wholesome, acti- wholesome intentions are those that deny uh, uh, the the uh, craving to behave in a way that would be harmful in in such a sense. So they weaken the enslavement uh, to craving. Also, craving arises out of self-clinging. So when you uh, wholesomely refused to behave or speak in a way that's going to be harmful to others, you're, uh, you're, once again, Uh, you're denying craving and you're denying self-clinging and you're weakening the power that they have over you. So they're moving you closer to awakening and to nirvana. Whereas going the other way, the unwholesome ones are just increasing the power of uh, 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 craving and self-clinging. So this is an interpretation of karma that makes absolute sense. And not only that, it even satisfies, to a large degree, the kinds of expectations that people were putting, on, or were, that still are, putting on this other, rather absurd interpretation of karma. Because if you, if your intentions become more and more consistently wholesome, and the speech and action becomes more and more consistently wholesome, then uh, it just, in the realm of cause and effect, you are going to derive benefit from that. You are going to be respected. You are going to be loved. Uh, You are going to benefit in many ways, both materially and non-materially. You, uh, you know, you, in, in terms of the, eight worldly dharmas, you know, the four positive versions of them, uh, uh, speaking and acting out of wholesome intention is going to cause uh, those kinds of uh, dharmas to, to uh, uh, arise in your lifetime. So it's a beautiful, elegant, to, to, to co-opt the term karma and reframe it in this way. It, it Everything fits together and now it makes sense and now you can understand it and you're not left with some impenetrable mystery that uh, that uh, nobody can really understand. And uh, you have to posit some kind of supernatural process, Akashic record or some... Uh, yeah, something that somehow can manipulate the complex unfolding of a world that's due to causality to, uh, to fulfill the, uh, the so-called law of, of karma in that regard. Uh, you, you see the, the huge problem that it posits. Uh, everything the Buddha taught was highly consistent. One of the things he taught is causality, that everything arises due to causes and conditions and everything in turn is uh, itself uh, causes and conditions for other things in the future. So that's really consistent with that interpretation of karma. And that interpretation of karma is really consistent with the idea of uh, rebirth of the self and reaching the point where you can say this is my last rebirth. Not meaning this is the last time that I'm gonna emerge from a woman's womb, but rather this is the last time that I'm going to dwell in this perpetual state of believing that I am a separate self. i probably said more than necessary about that, but.
2: (laughs) Thank you very much, that was incredibly helpful, thank you.
0: You're welcome.
1: All right, looks like the next question is from Kevin Hing, unless uh, Maria is hiding out somewhere. Uh, I think Kevin is here, assuming Kevin H. and Kevin Hing are the same. Um, uh, Hello. All right, Uh, do you want to read your question or should I? Well, go ahead, you go. Okay. can you please discuss how a practitioner can better understand the line between the skillfulness of diligence on the one hand, and the hindrance of striving slash over-efforting on the other. I recently realized that I've been exerting way too much energy into seeking an intellectual slash analytical understanding of the concepts in TMI and Dharma, and I find myself taking a much more relaxed approach, but perhaps too relaxed. For example, I find myself preferring to stay in stage two of the four-step transition, seeking to become more grounded and aware of body sensations, with less motivation to engage in the highly energetic slash focused following and connecting to the breath that I was doing previously. I now feel much more calm and grounded during my sits, which counters the anxiety that I've been experiencing on a regular basis. But I wonder if I'm not exerting enough diligence as I'm spending more time wandering and in distractions. Per your guidance last month, I'm endeavoring to become more skillful in the use of intention but I'm still a bit hazy as how to maintain an appropriate balance of intention and diligence while mm-hmm. avoiding striving. Thanks very much.
0: Okay, great, Kevin. Um, yeah, this is a very good, very good question and uh, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to clarify here. Um, to be diligent is to always perform the practice as it's uh, as is appropriate for the stage you're at uh, well as is appropriate for whatever is arising in your mind you know what it is that you're supposed to do how you're supposed to respond when mind wandering occurs uh, how to respond uh, when forgetting occurs uh, what to do to keep forgetting from occurring what to do to, uh, uh, to keep subtle distractions from becoming gross distractions, how to deal with dullness or pain. You know, at every step, you, there, there's a simple uh, collection of instructions about what to do when this happens. And diligence means doing that, just doing that. Um, now, if you think about striving, Striving doesn't really accomplish anything. By, by getting all tensed up and worked up, I'm gonna make this happen the way that I want it to, and the way it's described in the book, and things like that. Looking at the goals and objectives and, and trying to use willpower to make them happen, it, it doesn't, all it does is it makes you tired it makes you frustrated it makes you it makes some part of your mind say to you uh, for someone who's putting out this much effort and not getting any results, there's something wrong either I either just isn't right for me or I'm not right for it or it's impossible or whatever, because no matter how hard I strive, you know the real result isn't coming. The idea of diligence is you just Follow the instructions. You just the only effort that you put in is to is, is that of not allowing yourself to do something other than following the instructions and trusting that if I just follow the instructions, that the results will arise. To the degree that you put in effort, let that be the effort to maintain that intention. And when you recognize that other intentions are encroaching, to reinforce the intention to follow the instructions. So I'm really trying to move meditators away from uh, that sense of striving and effort. Uh, But uh, at the same time, it doesn't mean, well, this is so hard, Uh, I'm gonna stop striving, so I'm gonna take a break from the practice and uh, do something simpler. Uh, maybe go ahead and and spend a little time uh, daydreaming or thinking about things or whatever else. Diligence means while you're on the cushion, you do the practice. What practice you do, the practice that's appropriate to what is arising. If what's happening in your meditation is forgetting and as far as you're concerned, you're at stage five and you should be working on increasing the power of your mindfulness and overcoming subtle dullness, then you're not practicing appropriately. So diligence is practicing appropriately for whatever is occurring in your mind, um, in, in your meditation at that point. And actually it carries over as, as we go along and as mindfulness develops. It's also the same thing is true in, in daily life. The diligence and the practice of the Dharma, uh, the Dharma itself is prescribing uh, ways to deal with different situations, different be- behaviors to manifest, and so living the Dharma means the same thing. It is being diligent in the practice as described, but not forcing not trying to to use a lot of force and effort uh, but uh, but doing your best to to actually do do what's prescribed but not something else. Now, another thing, another form of striving is, I, I'm going to try to understand this, I'm gonna make this into something more complicated than it is, and I'm gonna spend a lot of time struggling with it and wrestling with it. So, a lot of people take intention and say, oh wow, this is some new important idea, I have to develop intention Uh, I have to learn to understand what intention is so that I can generate it and sustain it. But they're kind of missing the point. Intention is really all that we ever do. You know, um, uh, the intention arises to have a cup of tea. So I go in the kitchen to have a cup of tea Um, or my, my body gets up. And goes into the kitchen my mind remembers where the different things are that I need to make my cup of tea you know and everything follows all I did was generate an attention so uh, that's what I'm trying to do at the beginning is to help people to stop trying to be the one that does something now The end of the process is to realize there's no self to do this anyway. That self can be deconstructed in a couple of different ways, but one important way that it can be deconstructed is the self as agent and the self as observer. Now, self as observer, that's a tougher nut to crack, but self as agent is something that I'm trying to help people to overcome from the very beginning, from the very first stages, is that you aren't doing this. There is no self in charge of your mind. There is no agent within you that can exert a lot of force and effort and make your mind behave in a particular way. But rather, if you diligently perform these practices, if you sit down with the intention to diligently perform the practices as appropriate to what's happening, and then just keep repeating that process, then the results will arise of themselves. If you introduce this this contrived notion of self and start expending a lot of mental energy, you're going to become tired, and you're going to become frustrated, uh, and you're going to, you know, I mean, all of this I, 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 I want this. I expect this result. There's something wrong with me if I can't get this result. This is taking too 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 long. I don't like it. Uh, I'm disappointed. I'm I I I I I'm doing this. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to, have to meditate four hours a day to make this happen. You know.
3: Right, but then I think I also figured out that you were using the mind system and the moments of consciousness model maybe as a way of getting an entry into that sense of no, of no self, but then I was cleverly finding ways to overthink that too.
0: That's right, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that, that, is, that is something that often happens. And you overthink it, make it complicated, and then it becomes a problem to solve rather than something just simply to to uh, recognize. So. Right, right. Okay. okay, thank you. You're welcome. I, th- I think that's one of the most important and valuable things that uh, I'm trying to give people is the gift of uh, getting over themselves <laughs> right from the very beginning, long, long before uh, Uh, any kind of profound understanding of no-self can arise, they can start getting used to the idea.
1: All right, so we're um, an hour and 15 minutes in. How are you doing? You still raring to go or you want to...?
0: I'm fine. Let's take take at least a couple more questions.
1: Okay, yeah, great. So um, next one is from Alex Bowen. Looks like we have several Alexes yeah. in the room, so maybe one of them is that one. But we a he- head shake from one Alex. Uh, another Alex has his camera off. I'm yeah. mm-hmm. here. All right, so your question, you're a little quiet, so I'm going to read it. Do you feel that a dry insight practice prepares someone for the work of first path? And is there a difference in the character or depth or intensity of the material which arises for purification on first path as, compares to, as compared to before?
0: Hmm. Okay. Uh, do I feel that the dry insight practice prepares someone for the work of first path? Um, it, does, it does in the sense that uh, it successfully Will trigger the arising of uh, of insight and allowing uh, allowing to some degree or another all of the insights to develop to a degree which uh, provides a uh, both an understanding of uh, of the the true nature of the self as uh, a a mental fabrication and the feeling of self although it's present as being something that is uh uh that is not real that it it, it too it, it's a mental fabrication so it does prepare people for the work of first path which uh basically involves coming to the place of recognizing that what you've done so far still leaves you, it has reduced uh, to a significant degree the amount of suffering and the modes of thinking that you fall into and behaving that you fall into that produce suffering. But it does lead to uh, uh, a much deeper understanding of, of suffering, Uh, that suffering, uh, that that there still is suffering, there's dissatisfaction, that there's many subtle forms of dukkha that are still present, present to the extent that they dominate most of your experience. And that that realization and that understanding of the relationship between uh, dukkha and the remnants of self-clinging, the dry insight practice does prepare you to to do that because there is this constant emphasis on seeing the three characteristics. Um, And so you can come to the point where you have a deep enough insight into uh, uh, craving and self-clinging that you will uh, Uh, you will undergo the uh, transition to second path. And that understanding will greatly attenuate uh, craving in in both both of its forms as desire and aversion. And uh, uh, so that uh, uh, you understand the problem and the work of second path is to overcome the uh, to overcome craving for things of the sense realm, and to recognize and begin to uh, work towards the elimination of the of the self clinging that is still arising out of the sense of being a separate self, which is happening at this kind of a deep emotional, kind of feeling level, this feeling that I'm separate, even though that I know that I'm not. Where the problem uh, uh, with insight arises as it's dry insight is that um, uh, you you haven't developed the power of mindfulness and the power of uh, attention, of, of trained attention, of, of samadhi to the degree uh, to uh, to do the work of second path. So Uh, what you're going to find within the dry insight tradition is teachers that recognize that this is the problem and they say, well, the time has come where you're going to have to learn some shamatha. You're going to have to... uh, They'll use confusing terminology like concentration and things like that. But the fact is that you need to develop uh, a high degree of attentional stability and subservience to mindfulness and you're going to have to develop a habitual form of mindfulness, uh, you know, a deeply ingrained form of mindfulness that is more or less continuously present in your mind in order to continue the work. Uh, so it does prepare you for the work of first path, uh, but uh, but not not for the things that come after. There's a lot of work that... The things that you didn't develop earlier still have to be done. Now, the next part is, is there a difference in the character, depth, or intensity of the material which arises for purification on first path as compared to before? Um, A lot of people don't experience much more purification on first path and beyond that. and um, that's really a separate kind of work that a person needs to do um, because you know you haven't you haven't completely purified your mind of uh, all of these uh, all of its unwholesome uh, conditioning you have to you have to achieve a certain degree of that in order to have attained first path at all but the uh, problem with the dry insight practice is the uh, stage at which that would have happened uh, is uh, is cut off. When it begins to arise as a part of the uh, arising and passing away, the instructions are to note it and uh, uh, note it until it passes away. So you don't really go through... Uh, a period where there's an opportunity for a lot of purification to take place, then when you come to the insights that are going to lead you to first path attainment, uh, instead of, of passing through the uh, subsequent stages in the progress of insight uh, fairly rapidly and easily, you're going to find yourself in sort of a pathological dark night where. All of your neurosis and everything is coming to the surface as a result of uh of insight and the more insight develops, the more it triggers this neurosis to to come to the surface but in terms of your question uh, if you if you engage if you continue to engage in the work of purification after first path then um, then yeah, that's a really good thing. You don't end up as one of these people who has a lot of wisdom. There's an airplane going over. I'm gonna let it finish. That has wisdom, the wisdom of insight, but um, is is not truly mentally healthy and has a lot of predispositions towards. Uh, uh, unwholesome behaviors and and so forth, um, and these will stand in the way of of your further progress as well. So, but your question was: Is there a difference in the character or depth or intensity of the material which arises on first path, and and second path, and third path? Uh, and fourth path yeah, because there's still unresolved stuff for people on fourth path, lots of it, and uh we're we're seeing people who are resolving that at fourth path, and we're seeing people we're seeing the effects that makes the news when somebody hasn 't resolved that uh, yes there is it's it tends to be it 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 tends to be deeper and um perhaps inherently more intense in the fact that that this unresolved material has a greater capacity to disguise itself under the mantle of Dharma and to uh, coerce various mental processes into rationalizing it and uh, uh, and justifying the, the kinds of behaviors and attitudes that it, right? um, well, that's more of a strength than an, an intensity. It, it, it is, these things tend to be more deeply buried and more powerful. Um, I would say the intensity with which they are experienced is going to be more a reflection of, uh, of the, qualities that are developed in shamatha, uh, qualities of samadhi and sati and uh, uh, tranquility, uh, uh, joy, tranquility and equanimity. Uh, So um, they can can be more intense depending on the kind of preparatory work that a person has done previously. That can be compensated for by doing that work after stream entry. And um, it's actually easier to do that work after stream entry because stream entry itself produces a unification of mind that gives rise to a more powerful mindfulness. A stream entrant has uh, one thing about the, about True stream entry, uh, and here I'm a bit, you know, as I'm speaking, I think there's so many people out there calling things stream entry that really don't fulfill any of these criteria that I'm talking about, but a person has achieved true stream entry, uh, the mind is now unified, not around intentions that have been developed during the meditation process, but it is unified around the insights that have, to the degree that they've been assimilated. This very powerful unification gives rise to a much greater degree of mindfulness naturally. So, if a person were set to, set to work to develop that mindfulness further uh, to achieve the the sati sampajana of mindfulness with clear comprehension, uh, that would happen much more easily after path attainment than it it does before. And uh, the best thing that they could do would be to develop uh, those qualities of samadhi and sati to that develop, to, to, to that extent. Then, when they undergo, undergo purifications, if, if they know to undergo purifications, I mean, in a sense, the transition from first to second path is not only a deepening of insight into suffering, it is also in itself a purification. And to the degree that there's something that vaguely resembles dukkha associated with second path attainment is uh, due to the realization of that truth of suffering, just as the, the uh, uh, dukkha jnanas, as dukkha not as a pathological dark night, but as the dukkha in their own right in the first path has to do with the realization of insight into anatta and the resistance to that. The purification uh, uh, that is associated with understanding, more deeply understanding suffering and the causes of suffering in uh, terms of craving and self-clinging that happens in the second path. Um, uh, that purification uh, has is associated with the same discomfort or a similar discomfort that you might uh, might call the dukkha jnanas of second path attainment. Um, but um, so there there is at least going to be that, that purification, but it's far better if these other deeper purifications begin and they're part of the practice of first path. And this is all something that I'm in the process of writing up because there seems to be so much misunderstanding about insight, what it is, awakening, what it is, the path of awakening, and so on and so forth, um, that I'm feeling compelled to put together some of the kind of information that I'm sharing with you right now in, in a systematic manner. And with any luck uh, with any luck, it won't be that long before that becomes one of the things I have the opportunity to share with you. <laughs> Thank that you was a long much. answer to a very short question, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, yeah, but it was great. Thank you.
1: <laughs> okay, our next question is from William Wallen, who I believe is on the call. Mm-hmm. It is, um, I experienced pity-like waves of sensations when off the cushion while standing, sitting, or lying, as well as other prominent sensations off the cushion. And I wonder what is the best way to approach these experiences. Is it best to recollect what may have preceded their onset to reproduce them, to use them as a reminder to practice awareness of the breath at the nostrils, to ignore them, or some other method of utilizing them? Also, what do you see as the differences between the body scan techniques and associated intentions that you teach and those taught by Uvakin Goenkaji?
0: Thank Mm -hmm. you. Okay. Uh, Well... Uh, here's here's a, an interesting thing i have uh, in in the mind illuminated and in my own experience and in teaching for quite a few years my approach to these manifestations of uh p t was a pretty standard one uh within uh within a lot of traditions and a lot of meditation teaching traditions, which is that you just, uh, you you, you allow them to be there. You're fully aware of them, but you don't try to do anything about them and you let them just uh, uh, work, work themselves out. And I didn't experience severe, personally severe manifestations of, myself and that was a really good solution and this fairly large proportion of meditators for whom that is the best way to deal with it is just you know recognize that okay this is a process it's a part of the, of the meditation that it's actually it's not necessarily uh, pleasant but it's, uh, it's a good sign because it's a sign that there is unification of mind taking place. It's a sign that the meditation practice is um, bearing fruit and that it will pass away. And I think I would still hold to that as, as the best approach for someone for whom uh, they haven't become a major problem. Chasing after them, trying to develop them, invoke them, things like that, Uh, will make them stronger, but I don't see that it, in itself, it does anything to enhance the actual underlying process uh, that uh, I won't go into it, but it's the process that's described in uh, the sixth interlude. Uh, And I have just treated them, they're part of the process, they're not anything to to, uh, do anything with, you just let them happen, let them work their way out. Now I've had a change of I've had a change of heart about this. It started with the recognition that some for some people um, these manifested so strongly that it was very disturbing and made it quite difficult to continue their practice, and that uh, and that perhaps. These needed to be worked with intentionally in some way that I didn't really have uh, too much knowledge and experience with. I mean, the extent of my knowledge and experience of how to deal with PT phenomenon was that, uh, that um, basically energy uh, follows intention. And there seemed to be blockages in energy flow that produce a lot of these phenomena and so what i learned to do and what i advise other people to do is to when it's necessary work with these with energetic phenomena by just using attention to identify where blockages may occur and to bring the energy through those blockages but the other thing that i've come to appreciate especially through, you know, I did a series of retreats with Chinese community in, uh, in California. And uh, they always wanted to do Qigong as a part of the retreat, so I incorporated that into it. I had the opportunity to learn a lot about uh, 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 energy and energetic phenomena through those uh, Qi Gong sessions, and the other thing that I noticed that was extremely obvious was that the people who uh, had been practicing Gong or Tai Chi, either one, uh, and were very familiar with it, and for whom dealing with any uh, energy and manifestations of energy in producing bodily movements that actually uh, influence the flow of energy that these people never had a problem with PT and that led me to the conclusion that okay there's a there's a piece of this training that's missing, and that is to take into to take into account uh, that yes something important is happening that's manifesting as PT and yes it can take care of itself, but there may be. A lot to be gained by actually learning to work with this, and rec- acknowledging that there's some profound wisdom in all of the different traditions who do intentionally work with it. You know, the uh, working with chi in in uh, uh, all of the qigong, tai chi, all of the Taoist uh, oriented practices, with uh, working with prana in Hindu practices, working with channels and drops in the Tibetan practices that uh, at the very least this is a phenomenon that is uh, uh, that lends itself to being worked with in an intentional way and uh, uh, and there can be a lot of benefit in that so you know i 'm a little bit too old to add that particular expertise to my repertoire. But I'm encouraging my, uh, I I have a number of uh, student teachers who have years of experience with working with these uh, uh, energetic practices. And say, you please do the job that I can't do and figure out how this can best be incorporated into the 10 stages of shamatha so that we can derive the full benefit of this traditional knowledge and its utility and see you know how much it can enhance the whole process. The reason I was moving around, I wanted to show you this book that I just got. Uh, it's oh, it, <laughs> its title is shown backwards. It's called "Energies of Transformation" uh, by Bonnie Greenwell, and it was it was it was recommended for me as the place to start to learn about these things. I just received this book yesterday. Uh, It's out of print and I had to pay a silly amount of money for it but um, I'm looking forward to reading it. Uh, um, So I would encourage anybody who has any inclination uh, to work with Tai Chi, Qigong and also there's something very similar in Aikido too uh, or to work with uh, uh, any of the other pranic practices Uh, to if if you can find a good teacher Um, people ask about kundalini yoga and um, so you know I from what I have been able to learn about teachers of kundalini yoga in the West is you have to be very careful there are some good teachers but uh, uh, it's not too easy to find Uh, someone who knows enough about what they're doing not to uh, get you into trouble or to know how to help you if you get into trouble with the unexpected rising of kundalini. So I'd I'd put that at the bottom of the list of those kinds of practices, unless you know that you have access to a teacher who works really well with that. And that's fortunately within the teacher training students, there are, uh, there are those who have worked with yoga as an energy practice for many years and are extremely skilled with that. And so I just can't wait until their knowledge becomes more generally available in the context of practicing TMI.
1: Uh, did you want to hit part two of that question or should we go down the list?
0: Well, I think uh, it's getting close to time for us to end. So why let's deal with the second part of that question about the uh, uh, Uba Ken uh, Goenka body scanning and its relationship.
2: Uh, Excuse me, Chilodasa. I just wanted to mention that uh, the book you mentioned is available online uh, for free. And I've just... Um, Put the link into the chat uh, channel here it's on archive.com and oh you can it on, on screen
0: wonderful i wish i'd known that before i spent 41 dollars to get a copy <laughs> <laughs> that is you know i i did try to find to see i, I usually out of uh, print books are available online so, so that that's wonderful thank you very much wow. uh, everybody's benefit. i can't wait to open the book and start uh, seeing what it has to Offer, so you're probably personally familiar with it. Then, anyway, second part of the question about uh, uh, the relationship um, in in the uh, in the Ubyakin G- uh systems. They're using body scanning primarily as, a, as an insight practice uh, with the purpose of bringing, bringing a person to some degree of insight. Uh, I've often wondered, you know, I, I haven't come across very many people I I I know quite a few people that have practiced uh at least in the Guenka tradition haven't met too many who have followed Ruth Dennison or people that teach more the way uh I mean Ruth Ruth died a few years ago but I haven't had much contact with anybody who's practiced more strictly in the Uba Ken style maybe some of you have but the from from what I've heard from them, uh, the body scanning practice seems to be a really pra- effective practice uh, for bringing up the kinds of insights that we would refer to as purifications. And so how how well they actually work in terms of bringing up insights into the three characteristics and emptiness and and uh, dependent arising, uh, I, I really don't know. But What I do know is that uh, uh, using the body scan in the way that we do in stages five and six uh, works extremely well for developing samatha, and that especially in uh, stage six, sometimes it does act as a trigger for insight. Just the focus on sensations as sensations uh, which actually is uh, a very similar orientation to what happens in the Mahasi method, focusing on all uh, uh sensate experience uh, uh, and uh, trying to under trying to see through uh the the web of conceptual uh fabrication that overlies it that uh it it does seem to have a similar effect in that, so i The, the, it it is similar in some ways, although it's not, it's not the kind of systematic sweeping that uh, they use. The intention behind it is, is very specific. And uh, it's not necessarily to give rise to insight. But by the time you get to stage six, uh, you are well on the way to uh, reaching a level of samadhi, it's called upachara or access. And if you're doing the body scanning process and you're in that state of uh, upachara, of course, it can allow you to experience the whole body jhanas. But the other thing that does seem to happen sometimes is it does begin to give rise to insight experiences and uh, if they continue to cultivate them, then this can lead to insight and even stream entry at stage six. Usually insight doesn't really start to happen for most people until stage seven, but when it happens in stage six, it tends to be as a result of the body scanning. So uh, there's enough of a similarity uh, there with at least what the stated the intention is of body scanning in the guenka practice. Maybe you had something more specific in mind and I could address that, but if if you
2: didn't may I say something about the body scan practice? Just here.
0: Yes, please.
2: Hi. So for wait, many years nice to see, having, see you. <laughs> and nice to see you as well. You look so well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, For many years, uh, having taught MBSR, um, and this was the the first practice that one teaches as a teacher of MBSR, very secular practice, Mm -hmm. and I had not understood fully the the, the profundity of the practice until many years later. Um, But my very first body scan, I had an extraordinary experience that your book helped me to realize was a levitation experience Uh where due to the unification of all the mind, which of course at that point in my life... Like, you know, in 1994, I had no clue, but I thought, wow, there's something else going on here. And the mindfulness that um, one establishes through that body scan, whether it be a body sweep or body scan, both, you know, just depending on time, but was very, very important for me um, as a practitioner in terms of developing mindfulness of the whole body. And I don't know, you said the mindfulness, the jhana of the whole body. I didn't even know this term. But the sense of the whole body is a hollow shell. And yeah. the, the skin is just an interface that eventually dissolves when we, you know, realize oh. that unification um, mm-hmm. with the greater entity of the one mind. So uh, I have always felt that the body scan is such a wonderful practice, for as the lying down meditation I often introduce mm-hmm. it as. Uh, in teaching, uh, because it helps to develop this very powerful mindfulness. Mm-hmm. That if we are open, then at that point, that allows that unification of the mind, which I realized many years later was from your book of the levitation experience, which never happened again, and I didn't strive mm-hmm. for it again because I was told, "Don't worry about silly things like that." Mm-hmm. And that was great advice early on. <laughs> thank you.
0: Oh, you're you're you. Thank you. That's uh, that's. I, I think that's very helpful. Yeah, the the more I teach and the more people that I meet and, and see what unfolds in their practice and what experience they've had in the past, the more the more I learn and uh, the the more of a, a larger and clearer picture of this whole process is rising. And it's exactly that kind of contribution that uh, helps me in this process, so uh, do my best to pass this on to enough people that the evolution of the process will continue. So,
1: oh, well, um, oh where, where are you at? I, I think,
0: uh, I think that's probably enough for me for today. I mean, I'm enjoying this so much, so there's a strong temptation to continue but it probably wouldn't be the best thing for me to do that. So uh, we can save these questions for a follow-up session sometime soon. Okay. And maybe we'll put it at a time that some of the people... We've moved the time around trying to accommodate different time zones, but... uh, uh, Unfortunately, there's no there's no time that's perfect for everybody, but anyway, well, yeah, let's wrap it up for today. So, thank you all. I I enjoyed your questions, and uh, I, I'm I, was, I I love talking to people and helping them uh, understand this. So, I hope that uh, some of the things I said bear fruit for all of you. Thank so you. Next time.
3: Thank you. Until next
0: time. Yeah.
3: Thank you.